Good evening. Welcome to the local edition. News and information is keeping you connected. I'm Jason Dolt. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. Coming up, we continue our year-end wrap-up. Talking to local officials as well as our news partners. We'll be checking in with State Senator, New York State Senator Peter Oberacker. Talk about the year that was and what lies ahead for him. That's coming up in the second half of the program. We're going to start off where we usually start on a Thursday evening. And that's by checking in with the Times Union for the latest news. We've got managing editor Phil Pantuso on the line with us once again. Philip, welcome back to the program. Always good to be with you. So let's start off uh, with uh, a story, I guess. Uh, uh, Ulster County Executive Jen Metzger's got an, until uh, tomorrow to respond to a lawsuit. Is that right? Yeah. So this was a ruling that came out of uh, state Supreme Court on Tuesday in a lawsuit that was filed back in October by Ulster County Controller March Gallagher against Metzger and the county itself. Um, Gallagher was seeking Metzger uh, or to compel Metzger to release documents that she says are necessary for her investigation into Bert Golnick, who is the beleaguered, now former finance commissioner for Ulster County. Um, A little bit of a refresher on, on Golnick. He resigned back in March amid embezzlement accusations. Um, he had he later pleaded guilty um, to embezzling funds from the Hurley Recreation Association, uh, for which he was treasurer, and the re-election campaign for former county executive Mike Hine. Uh, he was also treasurer there. Um, there have been a number of other allegations around Golnick, uh, namely alleged lack of separation of duties, uh, modifying time cards, um, a potentially inappropriate relationship with a subordinate, an unauthorized county bank account. Um, and all of those kind of pilot allegations had prompted Pat Ryan, when he was county executive, to open an investigation into Golnick back in 2021. The county, like outside counsel, conducted that investigation it was completed in early 2022, um, but it's kind of remained sealed, right? So March Gallagher, the county controller, when she came into office, she started doing her own investigation right around the same time, kind of parallel to the official county uh, county executive's office investigation. Um, and she was able to substantiate a couple of things in, in her probe, including the, the modification of time cards. But she has been trying for over two years now to get two things that she says are, are necessary for her investigation. One is the results of the county executive's office investigation that was conducted by the outside counsel. And one are hotline tips that were phoned into the county's corporate compliance hotline. Um, she, she, had, she served a subpoena to, to Metzger to try to get those, um, get those materials. And Jen Metzger kind of refused to uh, comply with that subpoena. She called it an overreach and said that supplying all the report forms from the corporate compliance hotline in particular would risk identifying whistleblowers. So 
in an effort to try to resolve this dispute over the subpoena, uh, Gallagher filed the lawsuit. And that's the suit that was ruled on this week. Um, State Supreme Court Justice here in Ulster County sided with March Gallagher in, in, the, in her entirety, basically. He, he, gave, he gave Jen Metzger until tomorrow, 4 p.m., to hand over all of those, uh, all of those materials. So, it's, you know, it's kind of a full win for the county controller. Um, the county executive is, is kind of saying all the right things, I guess, in response. She, her, her statement said that um, she appreciates the requirement that any investigation protects the confidentiality and said that she was happy that this uh, ruling provided some clarity. Um, there was also like a ballot initiative um, that voters might recall um, that was on the ballot last month that clarified basically what records somebody can ask for and what the county controller has access to. So we don't really get into these semantic debates on the language in the, in the county charter. So, and and also then that sounds like both of those things kind of provide Metzger with, uh, for lack of a better term, more security with her concerns or that like she was, she was concerned about, uh, whistleblowers. So this provides her a little of what she was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, as part of the ruling justice, Richard Mott here, at Ulster County, he, he, he wrote that the investigation, uh, needs to protect the confidentiality of employees and whistleblowers. So, um, you know, it, it's basically putting a, a threat of sort of further legal action if any of those whistleblowers identities become made public. Will that be enough? Uh, is, is that enough for Metzger? You're indicating that she's indicating that yes, but also will that be enough to prevent there being any kind of chilling effect on other whistleblowers, which it seems like that's what the county executive was concerned about. I, I think, yeah, I think so. I mean, honestly, I think it entirely depends on the results of this investigation. Um, you know, this is a pretty niche um, case. And, it, you know, we don't really know what complaints were made to that corporate compliance hotline. So it's, it's unclear what's in there exactly. Um, you know, at this point, the, none of the whistleblowers' identities have been made public. I I should think that uh, if if that remains the case, hopefully there won't be too much of a chilling effect. Um, but certainly, if somehow one of the identities does become made pub does get made public somehow, there I think would be a chilling effect. I'm sure right now the county executive's office is determining the best way to hand over those records while shielding the identity of the of the whistleblowers as much as possible. And that's probably why she had, you know, pretty much the rest of the week to get it over to the county controller's office. Right, right. And heading into a holiday weekend to comply. <laughs> Fun times for everybody. Okay. Um, and now uh, another headline you have is that, uh, explains that Newburgh became the second city in Hudson Valley to adopt rent stabilization. Um, and again, Newburgh's kind of uh, just just a couple of years ago was really sounding the alarm on rent issues outside of the New York metropolitan area in New York State. It was like the beginning of upstate New York. That was the thing that signaled to me that there's really a major housing issue upstate and focused us on that. So what does this latest development in Newburgh mean? It's, yeah, it's a milestone vote. This was on Monday evening. Uh, Newburgh City Council 
uh, voted to uh, declare a housing emergency, which allows them to adopt the Emergency Tenant Protection Act. And what that does basically is they now can form what's called a rent guidelines board that will be approved by the State Division of Homes and Community Renewal. Those boards are usually comprised of city legislators, uh, housing advocates, tenants' rights advocates. There's probably going to be uh, a landlord or two on there. Um, It's sort of an intra-governmental, interagency, quasi-public board that then sets the guidelines, the the rental guidelines for units that are protected under the aforementioned Emergency Tenant Protection Act. Um, Kingston passed this uh, a couple of years ago, and it's, you know, it's been, it's faced challenges in the courts since then. Um, I, I think the Newburgh, uh, I think the Newburgh ruling will, or decision will also face some challenges, but, um, you know, the K- Kingston's, uh, Kingston's adoption of the ETPA is still standing, even though some of the decisions that the rent guidelines board have made have been vacated or modified. Um, so, you know, it's a state law. So there isn't really an argument that uh, it, to, to knock down the law at all. So the, the way it works is that uh, a city or a municipality has to declare a housing emergency. And how they prove that is they have to show a vacancy rate of 5% or less in the buildings that are protected by this act, this Rent Stabilization Act. And those are only buildings with six or more units that are older than 1974, which is when the act was uh, formally enacted. Um, The ETPA only expanded across New York State in 2019 as part of that big package of housing and tenant reforms that the state legislature passed that year. a couple of cities have tried to pass it since then. Kingston actually tried once, I think in 2019 and maybe 2020, and failed. They, they, their vacancy study didn't produce the result they wanted, essentially. Um, a number of other cities are in discussions as well. I think Poughkeepsie is looking at a vacancy study. Albany and Ithaca are also looking at it. But basically what this means is that all of the units in Newburgh uh, that are in buildings that are older than 1974, which is going to be most of them, and with six or more units are going to now be subject to rent stabilization. So this rent guidelines board can set um, a cap basically on the annual increase in rents in those units. And sometimes that increase can be zero. You know, Kingston tried to do Kingston tried to inter, uh, um, introduce a rent reduction in those units. That that was actually overturned. But it gives a lot of power to this board to kind of artificially uh, control rents give, in in this kind of like crazy housing market right now and provide some tenants with some relief. Let's stay in Newburgh, uh, but move into a story that actually uh, touches on the media. We're in the media, uh, but there's folks kind of debating about uh, Newburgh's relationship with the media following a story of uh, a falsely reported murder. Is that the case? Yeah, so this was a kind of crazy story that uh, my colleague Lana Bellamy and I worked on um, 
earlier this week, and we published it this morning. Um, so earlier this month, the hyperlocal news site Mid-Hudson News, which does a lot of good work, published a story about a murder in Newburgh that turned out didn't occur. Um, and it became this kind of, it became this controversy really because, well, really for two reasons. One, the story got picked up by this app called Newsbreak, which aggregates local reporting. It says it's trying to fill local news deserts. Um, but it's, it basically just takes other people's stories, posts them on its platform, and then it uses AI to write different headlines. Sometimes it will spin off editorials or commentary about the stories. Um, and, you know, it speaks to both the sort of decline in local news coverage um, and also uh, the kind of like social media environment in which uh, many people consume their news now, which is being, I think, increasingly warped by uh, by tools like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. The, the other reason the story struck such a nerve or the issue struck such a nerve is that the city of Newburgh sent out this press release really lambasting Mid-Hudson News, um, you know, rightly in some senses for, for misreporting the story, but they also criticized Mid-Hudson News for... Um, well, they said they heavily implied that they use AI tools in their stories, which, which um, we've reported is not true. And they, they, the, the city kind of used these lofty democratic terms, um, casting it as like an issue for American democracy and in the corporatization of, of media. Um, people can't, like readers, can't trust their local journalists anymore. Um, so our story sort of just looks at what happened with the Mid-Hudson News story, sort of why they got it wrong and the incentives really in this hyper-competitive digital era, era to, to, to be fast, and which can sometimes make some journalists override um, the scrutiny and skepticism that you should apply, particularly to a story about a murder. But we also dug into this policy, kind of this unofficial policy that the city of Newburgh has had for about two years now that Mid-Hudson News complained about to us and other local media organizations have complained about, whereby any news outlet that is seeking comment from an, an unelected official or a department head in the city of Newburgh, rather than going to them directly or rather than these departments having their own media relations contacts, now you have to go through City Hall um, and the city manager, this guy named Mike Neppel. And what Neppel says is that this is so he can verify all of the information um, and make sure that it's accurate before passing it on to a reporter. But what has happened in many instances, a reporter will reach out to Neppel to try to get to another person for comment on the story, and it will be hours or days before they're able, they get a response. Right. This, this um, system that they have, this policy they have, is can't move fast enough for news reporting. Yeah, and it, it also provides a kind of, you know, it, it, it sponsors the free flow of information and it gives a, an opportunity for the city of Newburgh to kind of weigh in on what is and isn't news. So there was, we've reported about one incident, a, a, a national night out, 
you know, where, where it's basically a, a community event for locals in Newburgh to kind of meet local law enforcement. There was a reporter there, and, and the reporter was asking questions of the police chief, and City Hall spokesperson intervened, saying that actually that needed to come in writing to him. Um, this didn't end up going in the story, but uh, Hank Gross, who's the editor of Mid-Hudson News, told me that he, earlier this year, wanted to write a story about new fire trucks that Newburgh was getting. And so he wrote to Mike Neppel um, to try to get in touch with the fire chief. And Mike Neppel said there's nothing new to report there, which is not for him to say. Um, and so that leaves you with really, as the reporter, one of two options to try to go around the city, which risks angering them and then they shut you out or they send press releases castigating you. Um, or you let the city, you yield some amount of your editorial decision-making to city officials in Newburgh. Um, you know, it's, it's the, the, the now owner of Mid-Hudson News, former state Senator Mike Martucci, he's, he has said that this is intentionally restricting the freedom of the press. I, I have to say, I think I agree with him um, there. Um, not that that excuses them reporting the story about a murder that didn't happen before they were, were able to get any confirmations from the city. What, what they did is like, they got a tip. They talked to one source. Um, the reporter said he talked to one other source too, although that person isn't in the story and I wasn't find any, and I wasn't able to find any information about that, but they sent an email to the city, but didn't actually wait for a response. Uh, and, you know, they got, they got, the story quite wrong in this case. Good, good way to wrap up the year. Of course, I'll let listeners know that we're going to have you on next week to do a full uh, kind of year in review wrap up like we're doing with all our uh, news partners. Uh, but for now, I want to say thanks again for joining us, uh, Philip. And I will remind folks, Times Union's online at timesunion.com. Philip Pantuso, managing editor, Hudson Valley Bureau, Times Union. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And happy holidays. Happy holidays and happy new year. When we come back, we're going to check in with State Senator Peter Oberacker. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. NPR and this station are supported by the communities we serve. In return, our journalism is available to everyone free of charge. Keep this public service strong. Donate today. Please donate at wjffradio.org. Thank you. It's the local edition. I'm Jason Dole. Thanks for being here. Part of our year in wrap up, we're wrapping up the year with our local officials. New York State Senator Peter Oberacker represents the 51st Senate District, and I spoke to him last week about the year that was. You know, the, the, the 51st Senate District being the second largest um, Senate District in New York uh, has had. Uh, many challenges as far as uh, um, public safety, um, heating costs, just, just um, uh, we're in that time of the year, you know, where we're concerned about heating costs. Um, healthcare has been a huge, huge, huge issue moving forward here in the 51st Senate District. Um, 
public safety again, you know, EMS, I'm, I've been a member of my squad um, since, since the early 90s. I've been a, a member of my uh, local fire department since uh, 86. And, and so grouping these things together, there are, there are many, many challenges, of course, that we see. So what can we say is, is, has been moving forward? First and foremost, it's, it's identifying that, that we have those issues. Um, and for me to communicate those issues and communicate, or I, I'll even use the word to educate, uh, my colleagues from downstate as to kind of the particulars, if you will, in my rural district, which is, is huge. So getting them to, to, to understand the, the, the issues with weather, with traversing topography. I mean, some folks are traveling well over an hour just to get basic uh, medical uh, attention, medical care, uh, looking at, you know, those type of issues. So, so overall, uh, in, in the district, we have our challenges. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I'm kind of the optimist saying that I'm hoping this year, being on the Finance Committee in Albany, I'm looking forward to really um, fleshing out, if you will, uh, some of these strong issues and seeing if we can't help get a better return on our investment for the taxpayers that are, that are of course, you know, supporting everything, um, to see if we can't get a better return on our investment by funding certain areas along those lines. And maybe, you know, some other ones, uh, you know, uh, as a former town supervisor, we'd always kind of go through the process when it came to budget. Uh, we'll adjust this one, take from there, you know, support this, uh, shore up this account, those type of things. And that's kind of where I'm at um, this year. You know, is it uh, right to say that this is was your first full year in this district? Is that right? This is the first full year in the new district that was uh, remapped. Okay, and there is a getting to know one another, right? There, the one good thing is, I, I guess, because they all align fairly um, close as far as issues go. The issues were the same. Um, it's just getting to know, you know, county officials, county executives. Um, sheriffs, uh, you know, the deputies, uh, folks at, at, at county legislators and those type of things. So, yes, you're right. It, it takes a little bit of time for them to get to know me, me to get to know them, and then how those issues dovetail in, you know, to those districts. So, yes, this is the first full year. And now I don't know if we're going with, with current events. I'm hoping, beyond all hope, that we won't have to go through another process of redistricting um, there's some talk that, uh, you know, with the federal congressional lines changing, that uh, there may be that to deal with as well. I'm certainly hoping that that uh, doesn't happen. Right. I mean, uh, just this recent ruling from New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, uh, reopened right. the redistricting issue for congressional maps. Uh, and you're, right. you're concerned that that might lead to changes to other maps? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there could be some uh, uh, foundational arguments, I guess, made um, with the Court of Appeals decision that it would also apply to uh, both Senate and Assembly lines here in New York. Um, hoping beyond hope, really, that that doesn't come into play, that we will, you know, allow that to kind of uh, be where it is for the next 10 years so that we can get to work. I can, you know, start advocating, start start um, dealing with the issues that, that are so pertinent within my 51st Senate district. I, I would really hate to have to have 
um, <laughs> how should I say this, reintroduce myself, right, or, or, or re-educate myself uh, on new on new districts and, and new counties and things of that nature. So, yeah, I'm hoping, I'm See, hoping that we don't. Uh, have that, that would lead to like a loss of momentum and efficiency. Sounds like, sounds oh like gosh, your concern yeah. is more practical than political. Oh, absolutely. As we look now to 2024, the new year, what's, what, what are you looking mm-hmm. at in the new year? I can break it down into three areas that I'll, I'll be, you know, concerned about the most. So, so first is, is I'll group it under public safety. And, and what I'm looking there is I'm looking at our first responders, both, um, you know, volunteer firefighters, as I said before, our EMS, um, which is not a, not an essential service, believe it or not, in New York. So it's not funded in our New York state budget. And I am carrying legislation that would make EMS an essential service. Um, back in 2018, I said my son was on the farm. He'd, he'd actually gotten injured. And it took over 45 minutes to get a ambulance to his, to his you know, scene. Luckily, he was fine. Uh, it was it was a pretty um, uh, catastrophic uh, accident that happened, but he's fine, and, and we we thank uh, you know uh, we thank our Lord that he is. Um, but we really need to focus in on it because we're we're seeing a um, we're not seeing the number of people involved in it. We're not seeing those that either have the time or the or the time to be um, to go through the training you know, that it takes to get there. So we're seeing a, uh, a kind of a perfect storm is the term I use, a, um, a tsunami when it comes to volunteer firefighters, volunteer EMS. Um, and, you know, conversely, I'm also looking at uh, our law enforcement uh, folks. I mean, they have been uh, severely impacted with some of the pieces of legislation that have come down, clean slate, um, cashless bail, you know, raise the age are, are three areas that have really affected I believe their ability to um, um, to keep us safe. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. So, public safety number one uh, on my list. Number two is our veterans and, and our elderly, and helping to shore them up when it comes to uh, many of the co- you know medical on both sides of that. Uh, mental health, as we know, is, is uh, I think a big issue with our, our veterans, and believe it or not, we're seeing that also with our senior citizens. Um, yeah, take HEAP, uh, which is a federal program for helping you know to heat your homes. Uh, looking at what we can do to help ease that financial burden on those two segments, I think would go a long way. Would go a long way to show that um, you know we're doing our job. And then lastly, I, I, I group this one under uh, family values. Family values today, um, when we're looking at um, schools and um, uh, you know, um, those school in general, I guess, would be the with the one that's kind of under our family values side of things, where we really need to let parents parent. We need we need to let them raise their children as they see fit. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. As busy as I am in Albany, the one thing I would absolutely love is 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 to say I don't need to legislate how you need to raise your children. You you raise them as you see fit, and um, I think. If we could get back to some of that, you know, we we look back sometimes at, at things and say, well, that was um, uh, nostalgic, right, or the way I was raised or whatever. But I really think there are some really core values there under that family value segment, <clears throat> excuse me, that we ought to get back to. And um, uh, I, if we could do those three things in my district, I will have accomplished 
um, some some really uh, interesting things. Some really interesting things. Okay, well, I want to thank you for taking the time to go over the year it was, taking a peek at the year that will be, yeah. and I want to you know wish you a happy holidays and, and a happy new oh, year yourself. Same here. Merry Christmas to you and, and yours, and let's hope that, uh, yeah, this, this 2024 will be, um, you know, it would be interesting, again, not to have too many peaks and valleys, just a more, boy, just something a little bit more steady. I'll tell you, that would be... Um, that would that would be a Christmas present early. How's that? <laughs> I, that's great. I think I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll drink a, a a New Year's toast to that. Yeah, that's a good one. Exactly. And, I will tip a glass to that. And I'll say, you know, your district covers a big chunk of the Catskills, and you know from peaks and valleys. So that's I do a good know spot. From peaks yeah. and valleys. Yes, <laughs> yes, I do. And again, that's uh, Peter Oberacker, New York State Senator for New York's 51st District. That's only half of our conversation. The full conversation aired this morning on Radio Chatskill. You can find it on the podcast or our website. That's it for the local edition. Daily's up next. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. It's going to be clear to partly cloudy tonight. Overnight low down to 17, so cold tonight. Sunny tomorrow, some clouds, high of 37. Cloudy, Partly cloudy again tomorrow night, not as cold. Overnight low down to 22. Overnight, uh, oh, yeah, the daily's up next, and after that, tramble-tamble.